going to say, it's okay to clap. I know we're in a Presbyterian building, but we are Baptists, okay? So, <laughs> oh, no, knock on, on my Presbyterian friends. All right, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Today, we're going to look at whom our Lord Jesus says will inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read just verse 5 today, and we're going to look at this text. And the word of the Lord says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray as I preach your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak that which you have spoken and that you would use me, Father, to speak to your people, to edify them, to conform them to the image of Christ. And God, I pray that you would use this word, Father, to speak to those who uh, are not in Christ today, God, either physically here or listening to the recording or by live stream, I pray, God, that you would use this to open up blinded eyes and bring sinners to repentance. God, may I speak that which you have spoken, no more, no less, and God, would Christ be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we continue in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, which this sermon uh, is the longest sermon, the longest recorded sermon uh, in all of Scripture that we have by our uh, Lord Jesus. And the first sermon that's preached in all of the Gospels. Uh, you know, I want to remind us all that God is a God of order and where things are positioned and how they're positioned are very important. Uh, I want to just give you some background and refresh uh, some of our memories and those who may not have been with us when I started this sermon uh, some weeks ago. You know, we know that Matthew is the first gospel. Uh, of the New Testament, and Matthew, his main audience is to his Jewish brethren, and he's writing the Gospel of Matthew to announce that Jesus is the King of the Jews. And we have much evidence to show us or to prove that Matthew's main audience was his Jewish brethren, um, first by the genealogy in chapter 1. If you'll notice that he starts with Abraham, and in the book of Luke, Luke starts all the way back to Adam. And then also Matthew uh, has overwhelming, has the majority of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled with Christ. You can tell that he is seeking to announce to his Jewish brethren that Jesus is the Messiah. He was the one that was foreshadowed in Genesis. He was the one that was prophesied through the prophets. He is the long-awaited king of the Jews. And then we have the Sermon on the Mount coming in chapter 5, which Matthew is not, was not written uh, in a very chronological way. You know, most, uh, many of the writings back then, they weren't chronologically, but they were structured in such a way to portray a message. And so even though this sermon was more about a year and a half, two years into his ministry, it's right at the beginning of Matthew. It, it's, it's the first teaching that Jesus comes forth, and I think that's, uh, I think that's very important. And then you have the Beatitudes. You have the Beatitudes being the first section of the sermon. It sets the foundation for the whole sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting, uh, one commentator put it this way, and this commentator's dead, so if you're a dead commentator, you carry more weight, as we all know. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, but if you look at how the Old Testament ended, in the book of Micah, the very last uh, verse, God is threatening to come with judgment. And then in the New Testament, the very first words of Jesus in his teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount are bringing blessings. These are the ones who are blessed. And I thought that was uh, interesting to note. So when we look at the Beatitudes that start in verse 3, well, before that, just want to remind you who Jesus is talking to here. If you look at chapter 5 and you look at verse 1, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. Now, Jesus' primary audience is his disciples because you see that the disciples came to him. However, his disciples weren't the only ones that were there. If you look at the very end of the, the sermon, 
uh, in verse 7, it says, when he'd finished these words in, in verse 28, it says, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So you had the disciples there, and the main, his main audience was the, uh, were his disciples, but you did have crowds, and you had a mixture of believers and non-believers, and he's talking to both of them. But primarily, his audience is to his disciples, and he opens his mouth and gives these eight or nine beatitudes, depending on if you combine the last two or not. And it's important to understand when we're studying the Beatitudes that there's a general flow to the Beatitudes. And, and I'll share that as we go through these Beatitudes one by one. There's a, there's a flow and there's a sequence to each of these Beatitudes. And they, they build upon each other in many cases. I outline the Beatitudes in this way. Beatitudes 1 and 2, which are verses 3 and 4, are the inner working of salvation. The inner working of salvation. Uh, Beatitudes 3 through 7 are the outworking of salvation or the fruit of salvation. And then the last two or one beatitude, depending on how you read the verse, the last two beatitudes are the consequences of salvation. And that's how I outlined it. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first two beatitudes. And we also looked at what what was the purpose What was Jesus' purpose in these Beatitudes? If you notice that there's no commands in these Beatitudes, God, Jesus, doesn't tell them to do anything. He's literally just describing who are the true ones that are blessed of God. Jesus, in these Beatitudes, he's describing the truth about who is in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not describing natural qualities that make somebody blessed. That's important to know as we go. Today's is blessed are the gentle. We're going to see that he is not describing people who are naturally, have a natural characteristic of being gentle. He's not describing natural qualities that somebody's born with or natural characteristics that somebody's born with. He's talking about supernatural workings of God. And those are the ones who are blessed of God. Uh, we also looked at what the word blessed means. It means, it means to be happy, uh, but there's more of a godly blessing in these Beatitudes. It's not the subjective happiness that we have when you know, parents see our children do the right thing and we have temporary happiness there or uh, you know, work goes well, so we have that temporary subjective happiness Happiness comes and goes. That's not the type of happiness that Jesus is describing here in these Beatitudes. He's saying these are the ones that truly have the blessing of God upon their life and have eternal happiness. And so last time we, all, we looked at the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You remember how I said that these Beatitudes are sequential and they are, there's a flow. The first Beatitude lays the whole foundation for the rest of the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude also lays the foundation for the whole sermon. When God says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that they are bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God. They are poor in their spirit, not physically poor, but they have no righteousness of their own. They have nothing that they can offer God that will give him any, give them any favor or any merit or any eternal standing with a holy and righteous God. And those are the ones who are blessed. And those are the ones, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Once somebody comes to that understanding that they are poor in spirit. The next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This mourning is a mourning over one's own being poor in spirit. This is a mourning over realizing that there is nothing that you can ever do to earn your way to heaven. There's nothing you can ever do to satisfy the debt that your sin has caused. And therefore, blessed are those who mourn. When you realize you're poor in spirit, you will mourn. You will weep. 
because you've come to that understanding that you deserve God's judgment. You deserve God's wrath. And that leads us to our next beatitude we're going to look today. When a sinner comes to that understanding, God changes them from the inside out. And now Jesus says, blessed are those who are gentle. Or your version may say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, notice Jesus is not saying, you guys need to be more gentle. No. Jesus is describing the very people who will inherit this earth. And we'll go into what exactly that means. But first, it's important to gain clarity and understand what gentleness is or what meekness is and what it's not. So let's define it. First, I want to start with the negative. What gentleness or what meekness, I'm going to use those interchangeably, okay? Because most versions say meek, some versions say gentle. But I want to start with the negative. What gentleness isn't? There's a misunderstanding with that term in the term of how Jesus uses it in a biblical sense. Uh, being gentle or gentleness is not weakness. Being meek is not being tolerant or yielding to error or not addressing error. Being meek is not overlooking sin. Being meek is not allowing somebody to trample and walk all over you. Being meek is not somebody who's naturally shy or gentle. Being gentle is not somebody who is just trying to go along or get along to go along. That's not what a biblical sense of those who are meek. Being meek is not being passive. And we all know people who their own nature is they're just quiet. They don't want to, you know, uh, they, don't want, they don't like confrontation. They, they don't want to talk about anything. Right, we all know those people, right? And we might mistake, oh, those are the, they're gentle. They're, they're meek. They, they don't, they don't, they're not in conflict. They don't talk. They don't bring up things that, you know, might cause controversy. Uh, that's not what it means to be meek, okay? Meekness is not weakness. And if you just look at the Beatitudes as a whole, if somebody is blessed, if somebody exhibits all these Beatitudes, are they, are they weak? Are they passive? Uh, look at verse 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now I learned long ago that that doesn't mean peacekeepers. There's a difference between keeping the peace and just not talking about anything. And being a peacemaker, there's an active, we'll go into that when I get to that text, but there's actually an active pursuit of making peace. And that's both physically, but it's also spiritually. Uh, making others have peace with God means bringing the gospel to them. Okay, so somebody who's naturally shy, passive, gets along to go along, uh, quiet, are they a peacemaker? Well, no, see how there's a confliction there. Furthermore, look at verse 10 and, 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and falsely say all kind of evil things against you because of me. Is a person who's naturally shy, quiet, uh, you know, timid, you know, goes along, get, gets along, go along, they're not going to suffer persecution. As it says here, blessed are the ones who suffer persecution, because they're not going to stand up for truth. They're going to shy away from it. When uh, there's a difficult time where they need to stand up and speak the word of God uh, lovingly, but to stand on the truth of God when God's name's being blasphemed, uh, a shy, quiet, weak person is not going to do that. Right? So, so do, you, do you understand where I'm going with that? So meekness is not weakness. We must understand uh, that that difference there. <clears throat> and also, this quality that, that Jesus talks about, being gentle or meek, is not a natural inherited characteristic. And I mentioned that before, but I really want to stress that because we all know unbelievers even who are, quote-unquote, gentle. They're nice. 
Um, they're very welcoming. They're very loving. They might have a natural disposition, you may, th- you may think, that they're mild. Uh, they're, they talk softly. They're, they, you might even say they're meek in a, in a general uh, worldly sense of the matter. But that is not this type of meekness and gentleness that only the Holy Spirit can produce. And that's key. This type of meekness that Jesus is talking about, only the Holy Spirit can produce this. It's not a natural, worldly characteristic. And I'll show you the, the distinction here in a few minutes. So there's the negative. That's not what gentleness is. So what is gentleness or meekness? Well, the word here in the Greek is only used four times in the New Testament. And it means mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit. One lexicon says gentle in the face of wrath. Okay. Now, this word in the Greek carries the idea of how one thinks of himself. One lexicon, one Greek uh, dictionary adds this to the definition, is that somebody who is meek is someone who's not being overly impressed with one's own sense of self-importance. Not being overly impressed with one's own sense of self-importance. This word has, has the idea of not only being meek towards others, and that's important, But the idea of this word also means being meek towards God. Another lexicon describes it this way. Meekness towards God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. In the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus, meekness towards evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, and he's using them to purify his elect, and that he will deliver his elect in his time. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. End quote. That's what gentleness is. This is about an understanding who you are. When we have an accurate view of ourselves, when we truly know what the Bible says about who we are, well, your self-pity goes away, your self-importance goes away, self-interest goes away, self-assertiveness at all goes away. It all crumbles when we have an accurate view of ourselves. And that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. This characteristic, this disposition of the spirit is an outworking of the first two beatitudes when you're poor in spirit when you realize the injustice that i suffer i deserve a whole lot more than that but god has been so gentle and kind to me that i have no reason to strike back when we are poor in spirit and, we, and when we mourn because we realize that we are bankrupt, we have nothing to offer, and we deserve the worst of God, then all of those prideful things, the, the self-pity and the, the self-importance and the self-interest, it just all crumbles. So I want to ask you, does this describe you? Do you have an accurate view of yourself? Or do you think so much of yourself that you exhibit the opposite of gentleness, harshness, bitterness, unforgiving spirit, self-promotion, self-serving? If that describes you, you need to go back to the first two Beatitudes. You need to go back 
and learn how you are poor in spirit. You need to go back to understand that you're bankrupt. You have no righteousness, no goodness in and of yourself apart from God's working. So I want to illustrate this. When I was going through the definition of meekness, you know, one of the things that I missed was one lexicon describes it as gentle, being gentle in the face of wrath. I, I, may, I don't know if I missed that or not. I may, but being gentle in the face of wrath. When, when you're being reviled and you're being and wrath of man is coming upon you, how do you respond? Well, to illustrate this, as I mentioned earlier this past Thursday in uh, the committee down in Columbia that was meeting uh, to hopefully draft a, an abortion ban bill, uh, one of the legislators down there, his name is Josiah Magnuson, he is one of the most pro-life Christian brother uh, that we have down in Columbia. And what he did that morning to prove a point, he went to the Greenville, uh, uh, we call them abortion mills, because it's just a mill that they could kill babies one after another. Okay? He wanted to make the point that the heartbeat bill that was passed last year has done absolutely nothing. To many people's shocking surprise, abortion mills are still open and they're killing babies and the numbers are coming that they're just as busy. Some are more busy than others. After that abortion, heartbeat bill has gone into effect. So he goes there and he films a live video and he could not get one of the pro-aborts away from him to film a video in peace. So he just said, whatever, I'm going to roll with it. He films a live video and one of the pro-aborts who has, you know, all the pride stuff all over her, pride mask. She's got a cowbell. And she's in his face ringing this cowbell between the, the phone and his face, screaming at him. Yeah. And he's trying to walk away and film this film to show, hey, look, this abortion clinic is still killing babies. And you can hardly hear him because she's just, she's railing and reviling. And in the face of wrath, he exhibited gentleness and meekness. He was firm. He spoke the truth. Uh, but he did not revile back. You know, I've seen instances where Christians have gotten into the flesh and they've reviled back. Now, there's a time to be firm and there's a time. We're going to get through that in here in just a minute. There's a time for that. But in response to the vileness, he spoke truth. He was firm, but he was also meek. He was also meek. Well, I want to illustrate this again. Uh, if you turn to Numbers chapter 12, we're going to illustrate this by looking at whom is called the most humble man that's ever lived. A man that's not God, and that's Moses. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 12. Now, if you look at verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now, that word humble in the Hebrew, when it was translated into the Greek, and we had the, and Jesus used the Greek Old Testament, it was called the Septuagint, the word that was translated to humble there in the Greek was the same exact word that's used in our text in Matthew 5, 5, that's translated for meek or gentle. Okay, so the same word, same word that's translated into the Greek. So Moses was a very humble man. And where is that? That's kind of stuck kind of in the middle of this uh, uh, account of when Miriam and Aaron were rebelling against Moses. Look at verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron, would you say that they were pretty close to Moses? Right? They were pretty close to him, right? They spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, they, as in Miriam and Aaron, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. So they're, they're rebelling against Moses. They're, are you the only one the Lord spoke to, spoke to? Who are you? Hasn't God spoken to us all? So they're coming up and they're rebelling against Moses. And that's where we see that Moses is said to be the most humble man uh, on the face of the earth. Have you ever been railed against from somebody close to you? Have you ever been uh, maybe even um, spoken slander against by somebody close to you? Has somebody lied about you? Has anybody ever 
turned their back on you that's close to you? Has anybody ever hurt you that's close to you? I think we can all nod our heads, right? Well, that's what's happening with Moses here. And, and what happened? What, what is Moses' response? Well, first, if you look at verse 9, it says, The anger of the Lord burned against them, Miriam and Aaron. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned towards Miriam, behold, she was leprous. So picture the context. Miriam and Aaron, they are rebelling against Moses. The Lord sees it. The Lord burns with anger and strikes Miriam with leprosy. Now, how does Moses respond? Good for them. They shouldn't do that. They shouldn't rebel against Moses because they're rebelling against God, which is truth, right? But how does Moses respond? Look at verse 13. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, O God, heal her, I pray. That, my friends, that is meekness. That is gentleness. And we could all learn from that. Now, it's important that Moses isn't some super spiritual person, okay? If not for the work of God, God worked that in Moses. And God took a long time to work that in Moses. But it's an illustration for us that when we're reviled against, and friends, he who seeks to live a life of godliness will suffer persecution. When we're out there, when we're living our lives dedicated to Christ and Christ alone, when we are standing up for the truth of the word of God, we will be reviled. We will be persecuted. We will have slanderous things to say about us, even possibly from other so-called Christians, just as we have Miriam and Aaron. They were in the, uh, in the family of God, and they were, were reviling against Moses. We will suffer that as believers. And how will we respond? How will we respond? Will we respond by reviling back and, and paying insult for insult and returning evil for evil? Or will we simply respond with meekness and pray for God to change and to save and to redeem and to forgive that very person who's slandering your name? You don't have to turn there, but another example is Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. In verse 60, as they were stoning him, as they were stoning, and these aren't just little rocks, they are stoning him to death. It says, verse 60, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them the very one stoning him to death Stephen prays that the Lord would not hold it against him them that is gentleness so let's look at our ultimate example our ultimate example is to look upon the Lord Jesus well in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, learn from me, and, and who am I? I am gentle, he says, and humble in heart. Matthew 21, verse 5. This was a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus here is said to be gentle, to be meek, and we ought to learn of him. When Jesus was on the cross, when he cried out to God, what did he say about the very people who were crucifying him? He said, forgive them. They know not what they do that's meekness now i want to address that someone who's meek 
It doesn't mean that they're not zealous, courageous, that they won't stand in the public square like John the Baptist and call men to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. They're not mutually exclusive. Just because somebody's meek, as we're described here, it doesn't mean that they're not zealous and courageous to stand for the glory of God. It's not an either or, it's a both and. But here's the difference, friends. The courage, the zeal, is not for you to make sure that you're being exalted. It's for the glory of God. So this Savior, Jesus, who is gentle, who's humble in heart, who comes gentle, it says, was he not also the same Jesus who overturned the tables in the temple? And those movies were the, like the rooms, like half the size of the sanctuary. No, it was a large area. And he drove the animals out. He was not a, a weak Savior. He was a strong, zealous Savior. But what was he zealous for? He was zealous for the glory of God, for the house of God. He was zealous for the house of God. Uh, Moses, we saw the most humble man on the face of the earth. We saw how he responded to Miriam and Aaron rebelling against him by praying for them, not returning evil for evil. This same Moses, do you remember what happened in Exodus 32 when he came down from the mount? He had the tablets of the covenant written in stone. What does he see? He sees gross idolatry. He sees the very people that he left. Now they're worshiping a golden calf. And what does Moses do? He throws the tablets and breaks them. But what else does he do? He sees the golden calf. He sees the false worship. He throws the tablets down. He breaks them in frustration. He takes the calf. He burns it in powder. Then he throws it and spreads it across the water. Then he makes him drink it. That's the same Moses who was the most humble man on the face of the earth. But what was his zeal and his passion for? It wasn't for him, was it? It was for the glory of God. So meekness and zealousness or zeal, courage, courage they're not mutually exclusive the zeal is for the glory of God our zeal and our courage must be for the glory of Christ to exalt him to to shut the mouths of of his adversaries and all at the same time second Timothy I believe is chapter two and all at the same time when you have those who would revile the name of Christ it says to correct them with a spirit of gentleness so even there, spirit of gentleness. So that is what gentleness or what meekness is. Now, Jesus here in this beatitude says, blessed are the meek or blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth or the land. Earth is a word uh, is used also for land. So those will inherit the land. What does Jesus mean by this? Those will inherit the earth or inherit the land. Well, first, the word inherit means to obtain by lot. It means to receive a portion that was assigned to one, to receive an allotted portion, or to receive as, as one's own or as a possession. There's a sense of ownership. When you inherit a blessing, when you get an inheritance from uh, your family, it's, it comes into your possession, and you have full reign and control over that, do you not? And also, that inheritance was always marked out for you. That's what this word means in the Greek. There's a sense of ownership that somebody has that has not yet been transferred. So he says, the gentle will inherit the earth. So the gentle here, he's describing as those who are believers, and these believers will inherit the earth. We will reign and rule with Christ. But why does Jesus say that they will inherit the earth, the gentle? You know, why not just say, you know, believers 
will inherit the earth. We, all, we know that unbelievers will not rule and reign with Christ, right? The new heaven, new earth, there's just believers, right? So why does Jesus say, well, the gentle will inherit the earth? Well, you may or may not know this, but when Jesus said, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, that phrase in the Greek is the exact same phrase in the Septuagint in the Old Testament in Psalm 37:11. It's word for word the exact same thing. So we know that Jesus is the master expositor. Uh, he knew what he was doing. It wasn't a coincidence that he's quoting uh, Psalm 37, 11. Uh, so if you flip there, it's important. Look at the context of Psalm 37, 11. Psalm 37 is a, a little bit of a longer psalm. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. But suffice to say, Psalm 37 is one of the only psalms where it's written to men. Most psalms are written praising God, right? Praising Yahweh. Psalm 37, the whole theme is verse, 20, is verse 1, where it says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers. So the context of this entire psalm was written to encourage true believers who look out into the land and question, Why do all these evil people seem to be ruling and prospering upon this earth. Has that been you? I know it's been me. Who's ruling the earth right now as it would seem with our naked eye? Who's in charge of this country right now? Who's, who, who are the men and women that seem to be ruling and reigning and being prosperous in this country? They're evildoers, are they not? I mean, just look around. So this, uh, this psalm is written to believers to encourage them, to encourage them that do not fret because of evildoers. <clears throat> Verse 7 says, do not fret of him who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Don't fret. Don't be worried because of all these evil men and all these evil women doing these evil things upon the earth. Verse 10 says, yet a little while, a little while. And the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. And the whole psalm goes, the wicked's plotting. Uh, the wicked gnashes teeth at the righteous. And it says the Lord, in verse 13, laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. It's a reminder Many verses in this psalm, the wicked will perish, the wicked will be no more. Do not fret because you see them being prosperous. Do not threat because you see as if it were them ruling the earth. Do not fret because of them. Wait on the Lord. Keep his way, it says. Wicked men may prosper. They may seem like they're having their day in the sun. They may seem like they're the ones that are calling the shots. But ultimately, if you look at verse 10, it says, Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. And here's verse 11 that Jesus quotes in Matthew 5 5. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. See, brothers and sisters, we who are the true believers will reign with, will rule and reign with Christ. In fact, since Christ is ruling and reigning right now, we believers are to be taking dominion because Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. He is seated on his throne. And he will continue to rule and reign, it says, as until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So we shouldn't cower back. We shouldn't cower back and just sit in our little Christian circles and say, oh, woe is us. And all these evil people are ruling the world. And so we're just going to sit and hide out in our Christian circles. And, and as the Church of Thessalonica did, well, Jesus is coming back soon. So I'm just going to stop working and just sit around. Uh, and wait for him to come get us. No, Jesus is ruling now. He will continue to rule. He's sovereign. He has a plan. 
he wins and we ought to have peace to be able to go courageously forward to bring the gospel to bear upon this world. And by the way, when we talk about ruling and reigning with Christ, you do understand that that's little. We will rule with Christ. We are co-heir with Christ. We will reign with Christ. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Verse 2 says, Or do you not know that the saints, believers, will judge the world? Now he's using this to make a point because the church of Corinth, remember they were suing people and they were going to the secular courts and he was saying, don't you know that we will judge the world? And then in verse 3, he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now the word, the word there you, uh, used for judge literally means to have oversight of, to have possession and authority over. And if that wasn't enough, in Revelation chapter 5, you have this scene of the lamb who's standing, it says, as if it were slain. Then the four living creatures that were described in chapter 4, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and sang a new song. You're preaching through Revelation still, right? You got into chapter 5 yet? No, it's, uh, there's a lot in, in those preceding chapters. Uh, but So they sing a new song, and look what it says in chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your, uh, with, uh, excuse me, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 10, you have made them, stop, who's the them? The them are the ones that he purchased with his blood. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests, and they will reign upon the earth. Who, who will reign upon the earth? The text says those whom God purchased with his own blood. And brothers and sisters, here's the point. Those whom God purchased with his own blood, he conforms to his own image and his image is that of meekness and gentleness. Friends, are you gentle? Are you meek? If I were to ask the ones around you the, the way we've described it here today, would they consider you somebody who is meek or gentle? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something you can conjure up. Galatians 5.23, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, because God has been so gentle with you, how could you be anything but gentle with others? God has been gentle with you. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he loved us. Psalm 103, 10 and 11 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. He has not marked your iniquities against you. If you're in Christ, he has been patient and long-suffering. He has been gentle he has been meek with you. How could you be anything other than meek to those around you and meek towards God? I'll tell you what it is. And this is how I'll conclude. Here's what it is. You don't have a right understanding. We don't have a right understanding of who we are. That's what it comes down to. When you have a right understanding of who we are and a right understanding of who God is, meekness just flows out of us. And that's how I want to conclude. I don't want you to walk away as someone who's in Christ and say, gosh, I'm not, I'm not meek. I need to be more meek. So tomorrow, I need to be more gentle. So I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Listen, folks, I've been, I've been dealing with this all week. 
okay? I have fallen way short of this text and feel way inadequate to even preach this today, okay? But I don't want you to walk away thinking, I need to try harder. That's the last thing you need to do because you can't do it. You can't be more gentle, okay? Jesus doesn't say be more gentle in this text, does he? He said, blessed are the gentle. So what do you need to do? If you struggle in this area, if you're not seeing the fruit that you want to, you need to stop trying to produce the fruit and deal with the root. And the root of that issue is you don't have a correct understanding of yourself. You need to go back to the first two Beatitudes. You need to camp out a little while on understanding your bankruptcy and and being poor in spirit. You need to camp out a while in the word of God to understand who you are apart from Christ. You need to camp out a little while and you need to mourn a little bit for how far, you, how far away you are from the holiness and righteousness of God. You need to camp out there. You need to get alone with God. And you need to cry out to him for how much you have fallen short. And then you need to seek the word of God and you need to study God's word. You need to study God's word to understand who you are. You know, John Calvin in his Institutes of Religion, he starts out by saying that that's the most important thing is to understand who you are. But he says you can't understand who you are until you understand who God is. And then he says you can't understand who God is until you understand who you are. They go together. So don't try to produce the fruit. You can't do it. Seek to grow in knowing the depths of your own heart and how loving and gentle God has been with you. The more you grow in the understanding of the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that will be the fuel to drive the caboose, so to speak. If the train's your sanctification, the fuel to drive that, that train is God's grace, is knowing how much God loves you, even though you've messed up. If you're in Christ, how much God has forgiven you, how much patience he's shown with you, that's the fuel to drive your life of sanctification. That's the fuel to conform you to the image of Christ. A little while ago, when I preached through uh, Philippians, there was a text on gentleness that said, let your gentleness be be made known to all. And see, that's part of your witness. We love others by speaking the truth of the gospel, but then they also see our life, and they also see when we're reviled that we don't revile back, that we have a a meekness towards man and a meekness towards God. So I encourage you, go back to the first two Beatitudes. If you struggle with this area of gentleness, camp out there in verse 3 and verse 4 and seek that the Lord would change you from the inside out. Mourn over your sin, mourn over your harshness, mourn over your pride and the outworkings, the bad fruit in your life. And God, he is faithful. He will change you. And you know what? When he does, you'll know that it's all him and all glory goes to God. Because you can't do it, brothers and sisters. You can't do it. And if you keep trying and you can't, you might want to evaluate your heart. If you don't care to be more gentle, to be more meek, if you don't have that desire, then you might want to evaluate if God has even saved you. And if you're outside of Christ today, you know you can come to know Christ, but it starts with that first beatitude. It starts with knowing that you have nothing, absolutely no righteousness, zero, that can attribute to your salvation. No, not just a little, no, not just a sliver. You don't have anything that will help you inherit eternal salvation. Not even your supposed profession of faith. If you're resting on some prayer that you said or your profession of faith or that you got baptized or that you fill in the blank, if that's what you're trusting in, that, oh, I, I did that, therefore, no, friends, it's more God did this, therefore, I have assurance that he saved me because I see what he did. 
I see the life he lived. I see the change in me. I see that I love the things that I used to not care about. And I see that I hate the things that I used to love, the sinful things. I see it. And you may not be perfect. None of us are. But if you are saved, God gives you that desire to be more like him. And if you don't have that desire and you haven't ever had it, friends, you might not. You might not be in Christ. So I would would encourage you to evaluate, have you started at being poor in spirit? And if you haven't, friends, Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will in no wise cast out anyone. John 6, 37. Anyone that comes to Jesus, he will not cast out. Even if you've presumed upon God's grace, you've used him and thought that he would forgive you of all your sins so you live a life however you want to live, you know, there's still forgiveness for you. You can still come to Christ, but it must be, verse 3, with a poor spirit, a contrite, and a broken heart. And God is faithful, and he will save you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your loving kindness, your tender mercy towards us. Lord, I ask first and foremost you'd forgive us, God, that you would forgive us. Forgive me, Father, for not being gentle, not being meek towards you and not being meek towards others. Even those in my own household, Father, I pray that you would forgive me and that you would help each and every one of us here that are in Christ, God, to seek to grow in our knowledge of who we are apart from Christ. Help each one of us to grow in our knowledge of who you are and your love and your mercy and your holiness and your righteousness and uh, your wrath and all of your attributes. Help us to grow in that knowledge so that we can truly be changed, God, and walk in, in meekness and gentleness and humbleness, forgiving others as you have forgiven us at the same time being courageous and being zealous for the glory of God and, and taking dominion in this world and standing upon the truth of your word. And God, may we do it as Jesus, you did it here on this earth. God, as if there's anyone here or listening, God, that are not in Christ, Father, I pray that you would grant them a repentant heart, a broken and contrite heart, Father, that they would come to the understanding that they are poor in spirit, that they would mourn over their sin, and that you would be glorified in their salvation. Help us, God, to leave here, God, not not trying to do better, God, but to try to seek you, to learn from you, to grow in our knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.